up, what up? Jimmy Murray here with Frank Padalano, and we are the Cashflow Kings. The Cashflow Kings podcast discusses money, finance, mindset, and investing with an emphasis on cash flowing real estate. Thanks for joining the Cashflow Kings, and welcome to our new episode, Real Estate Growth with Ricky Volney. We are here to help you crush your goals. So guys, a couple of years ago, I heard about this guy, Ricky Volney on Instagram from another local investor. And he says, you have to follow this guy and, and, and watch the growth and watch some of the projects that he's tackling. And it was really cool to watch Ricky over the last couple of years, um, just in terms of growth. And then what he was sharing with us before we jumped on the podcast, it, I mean, it's just incredible what he's been able to accomplish in a short period of time. So Ricky, welcome. What's going on, boys? Thanks for having me. <laughs> so this is kind of like the New England connection here. We're down in Rhode Island. Ricky's up in Boston. Um, so it, it's kind of cool to have another local New Englander on the show and, and talk about how they're crushing their goals in real estate. Yeah, great. I'm excited to be here. So Ricky, how, how did you get started in the real estate game? Uh, so for anyone who doesn't know me yet or hasn't heard me on other podcasts, I can kind of run through it. But uh, so I, I went to Northeastern University uh, in Boston. Um, while I was there, you know, kind of growing up, my only outlook on real estate had been my primary residence that my parents owned, right? Our house. Yep. Like, I had never thought of real estate in any other way. Um, right. I think a lot of people look at real estate that way. Even still today, it's like, I feel like, you know, I meet people and they don't understand that real estate is, can be a career, it can be a life. Um, but uh, back then it was my, my parents had their house in Connecticut. We grew up in it, you know, it was 300 grand and that's what we knew for real estate. Um, yep. Went to Northeastern, kind of started seeing the world of rentals, kind of where I was living, right? Renting apartments, had friends who were real estate agents, and that kind of opened up my eyes to that side of the business. Um, didn't think then that that would be what my career would be. I just saw that it was an option. Um, I actually took my real estate class while in college and failed to be an agent. Uh, failed the test. That's um, awesome. You know, just didn't study, drank too much. Didn't, didn't dedicate myself to it. So just living the life. It's all good. Yeah. I was there. So, you know, <laughs> moved on from that. Um, and then it didn't come back into my, you know, into my mind until senior year when I took a class called on real estate finance. Yep. Um, so it was one of my capstone classes, my senior year, we learned about analyzing deals, cash flow, cap rates, all different aspects of real estate. And like, you know, that was from hotels and, uh, you know, trailer parks and all different types of things. Um, and what really grabbed me was that I was analyzing rental properties in Massachusetts. And because like I did my paper on a, a multifamily near my college, near Northeastern, and I actually could see tangibly how you can make money in the, the cash flow that was there. Um, this was in 2009, right? And this yep. is right when the market had kind of, in Boston had been very flat, but rents had kept coming up out of the recession. So 2008, you know, six, 2007, 2008, um, you know, through the recession market, the multifamilies had stayed flat, rents kept climbing. And I realized during this, this paper that there was really kind of a, an opportunity if you were willing to take that risk of buying a multifamily in Boston. And most people hadn't gotten over 2008 yet, right? You know, yeah. some people hadn't started buying and I was young, I was young and dumb. And like, I was graduating school and I had nothing really to risk. Um, and so I got a job in finance right after graduation and, you know, kind of had set my goal after my, uh, after graduating, I wanted to buy a multifamily as soon as possible. Um, the, uh, you know, spoke to a lender and, uh, learned about FHA loans. Uh, I needed six months of W2 income. So my yep. goal was by December of that year, 
uh, it'd be six months and I'd be, I would own a multi. So um, kind of set my, set my goal to, for December. Uh, and then I needed to find the money. Um, it, it happened to be that I kind of just, it, it's lucky. I mean, I, yes, I set myself in the direction without having this happen, but the luck was that my mother inherited some money from her great uncle who passed away. Um, and I went to my mom with my proposal from class, my senior year paper. And I said, I want to do this in real life, not in class. I want right. to buy a multifamily FHA loan, small down payment. Um, and she was like, sure. She's like, let's, uh, let's, let's give it a try. So I'll give you, I'll give you the money that I inherited. Um, and we, you know, you can make a run at it. Uh, I think so. that's, so I think that's really cool. Um, because a lot of times like folks get started and this is like my personal story. So I'm similar, right? So I think we graduated around the same time. I've got a degree in finance, took a job in finance, always trying to get back into real estate. Um, but I started, my dad told me it was the worst decision I've ever made. <laughs> so it's cool to hear your story where your mom's like, yeah, no, like, I believe in you. Let's, let's get after it. I, I think that's really cool. I think it's awesome how you just like brought her this proposal and she was able to go for it. That's pretty yeah, cool. I, I think that people ask me that, like, how did it work? And I said, honestly, it, you know, it was a casual conversation, but it was also more formal than just being like, Hey mom, give me some money. Right. Like it, I, <laughs> yeah. I had a plan. I had a, 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 an idea of how to execute it. And I always say that if you're going to go approach a friend, a family member, um, don't be someone who just goes and asks them like, Hey, can I have some money for this like investment? Like treat them like an investor and that's how they should be treated. And like, that's Absolutely. how treat any friends or family that's ever invested. Like you need to treat them in a way that this is important. This is their money. You need to deliver them a return. This isn't charity. Um, and, and don't treat it that way. And then, and that's the, you know, that's the way you should handle any of those relationships. So how many units was this first one? So it's a three-unit building uh, located on Mission Hill, uh, kind of near Northeastern. It's actually where I lived at the time, right near 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 where I lived. So I knew the rents. Uh, and I, that's it's something I've held strong to to this day. Is like I really think you need to understand where you invest. Um, from that day, I invested where I lived. Uh, still to this day, I invest in Boston in areas where I am very you know I feel I'm knowledgeable in the Massachusetts area. Um, you know I I don't think you should invest out of state. Uh, I'm not a believer in, in, in investing in an area where you can't be, be there in a day or in a few hours. Um, you know, I just think there's too much risk and I don't think you can do it as well as the people that are doing it there locally. So what makes you think you can beat the locals at it? You can't. So stay out of the way and do it, do it best where you can do it. So, so do you think that you would be a passive investor if it was not local? Yeah, hundred percent. So if you're going to invest, you need to have the rock star locally. And you could give them capital and invest alongside them. Um, but don't try to do it on your own, right? Like you don't think you're like, people will send me deals in like Austin, Texas. And they're like, should we buy, should I buy this? I'm like, what do you know about Austin, Texas? What do you know about Austin? Yeah. yeah like, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure the fact that it got to your inbox and the guy in Austin didn't buy it, it probably sucked. Like, no, seriously, right? I love that. <laughs> I'm pretty I, sure the guy in Austin passed on this if it's getting to Boston to buy um, so that's kind of my, my thought on that, but so invested in a multifamily in mission Hill, three units, um, you know, the purchase was on the market for a million bucks. Uh, I offered 900, uh, FHA loan. So it's three and a half percent down. Um, you know, the max loan you could get at the time was eight, uh, 60. 
So, you know, I ended up buying it for 930,000. Um, and I, the max loan you could get was, was 860. So I ended up having to put down, you know, what's that? Uh, $70,000, $80,000. Yep. Um, and so that was the, the investment. It was uh, one unit was vacant, which would be my, you know, owner OC unit. Um, all, and then the other two units had college tenants, first and third floor. Um, I jumped right into it. And my goal was to, was to turn the building in a year. So I wanted to renovate it. Um, and I, you know, and turn it, uh, around in one year, I got into this in, you know, the second floor, my, you know, turned it from a three bed, one bath to a four bed, two bath, uh, by changing the dining rooms into, uh, bedrooms. Um, and then, you know, kitchen, it was very, you know, in, in looking back at the renovation, it's very bland reno. It's, I still own it today, but it got the job done. New kitchens, countertops, uh, appliances, floors, paint, um, new, built a new bathroom. And then I uh, approached the, uh, the, the tenants on the uh, third floor and I showed them the unit. I said, hey, you guys want to move down here at the same rent? Um, and they were like, yeah, our unit's a dump. And I was like, great. <laughs> and so one weekend they moved all their stuff downstairs um, and they moved into that unit. And that allowed me to, you know, to move upstairs and renovate the one upstairs. Uh, and then I repeated that with the first floor. I said to the first floor tenants, you want to move to the third floor? Uh, they gave me a little bit of a harder time. I ended up paying movers to move them uh, to make it, so it was worth their while. Um, you know, the reason for that is it was a lot later in their lease, right? By then it yeah. was like, getting into summer, they only had like three months left. So it was like, they're going to move for three months. A lot of them were like, nah, like we're, we're not even going to be around. So I got them to move, um, was able to do that renovation. Uh, and so in the end of the day, the, the property became a 12 bed, six bath for, instead of a nine bed, three bath. It's huge, huge. Now, were there like approvals that you had to go through? And is that kind of what gave you the parlay into what you do now? So, I mean, back then i you know there's there were approvals that you should have done but you know, <laughs> all good jimmy all should good. we stop the recording right now <laughs> nah <laughs> nah, I mean, I think, nah I, you know what he still owns it today it's it, it's it's uh that infamous cash cow that you see on mls right but i, I think the, the real estate's simple right and i think that people overthink it you're walking into that three family mission hill saying how can i increase my cash flow and then set myself up for the long term. And that's the most important aspect. I feel like a lot of people, a lot of younger, I'll say like younger millennials, when they go out and they buy these properties nowadays, they're looking to live in like the nicest unit. Honestly, you should live in the shittiest unit. You want to rent out the nicest unit so you can maximize your cash flow. So you get into the next one that much more quickly. And that's how you set yourself up for financial success. Um, yeah. And I think one thing too, like my buddies who are real estate agents who helped me with that transaction, I remember looking at multifamilies and they were like, we looked at some that were like 600. It, it's crazy to think back. But we looked at some that were like 600,000. They had two units, um, you know, or even some smaller three families that made decent cash flow. Not great, but they were okay. But it was a lot smaller of an investment, a lot less risk. Um, and I remember one day I saw this building with my, with my team, my buddy, they were my friends at the time. And they were like, this is it, Rick. This is what you talked about. Like, 4,500 square foot monster three family full of college kids, four bed units. This is the, this is it. And I was like, yeah, it is, but this is a big investment. But in, in hindsight, that building now is worth two and a half million dollars. I was just going to ask that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah. just crazy for two and a half. I paid nine thirty. 
So like, you know, if I had bought the two family for 700, yeah, it would have been worth, I think those are worth like one, two now. So you would have got good return, not the return I got on the big guy. So like, I think it's, you know, you gotta, you gotta take those risks, but it's always an educated risk. So what I'm hearing there is when your team rolls up and they're like, Hey, this is exactly what you're talking about. I'm a huge fan of the secret and speaking into his existence. So it sounds like you had those conversations with your friends and, and family members in terms of, Hey, this is how I'm going to execute. Um, what did that look like for you? Um, yeah. I mean, it was exactly that. And like, they had to make, we had to do some pretty creative things to get the deal done. Like I, I had to, they had to wait my, my, they had to waive their commission on the transaction to get my loan. So wow. because I couldn't qualify for the loan, if they got paid their like 35 grand, I had them, they needed to waive their commission on the front end. And I, and pretty much do a side agreement with me and say, Hey, I'll, I owe you one. Um, yeah. and, I'll, and I'll get you back 30 grand as soon as I can. Um, and you know, so that's what they did. It allowed me to get the property, even though I wasn't able to, uh, you know, that, that was just, you know how FHA loans, like it's like checking boxes. It's like how much do you make? That's exactly point? right. And it's like literally the lender was like, if you can get them to waive their commission and drop the price to nine hundred, and so you're, you know, pretty much I bought it for nine thirty, but I didn't have to pay. You know, we removed commissions or however it was. I forget how it worked. That was enough to get my loan. Yep. So you start out with the three family Mission Hill that you absolutely murdered on in terms of where it just appraised. How do you start to level up in the game after you go through and stabilize that building? Uh, yeah. So then it was, it was kind of, as soon as that one got finished and stabilized, I was all, you know, I was, I was excited and ready to get into number two. Um, so that was in December of 2010. I bought that property. And then in March or May of 2020, 2012, I bought my second multi. So it took me awesome. about a year to clean it up and get it cash flowing and then it took me about six more months to get it to get to a point where I could buy another one. Ricky, so, did you uh, refi that or you just kept that one because it was FHA, right? Yeah, just kept that one as is. Um, and then I was, but back then in 2010, you could have multiple FHAs. There wasn't the rule they have now about like one FHA per name. Um, so I was able to get a second FHA loan uh, in a year and a half later. So is that a recent change? Because I always thought that you could have two as long as you lived in the first one for a year. That's so that's what it used to be. Right. Now you can only have one period on your name. Interesting. That's news. I I didn't know that. I wonder when they made that change, but it's been like um, five years, I think. Um, I'm out of date. I gotta I gotta hang out with Ricky a little bit more here. But yeah, because so. it, it you know, it was a great opportunity. Like my goal or you know, I was like, oh. At first, I was like, I could just keep doing this. And, I, and then you quickly realize, like, banks aren't going to just continue to do that. But I could get <laughs> I got two of them. And the second one I bought for a four family on Mission Hill near the college uh, for eight twenty five. dollars yeah. um, And that one, smaller units, they're three beds, not four beds, but still four units. Um, and FHA. So I only put down like 25 or 30 grand on that one. Um, yep. And uh, was able to get that. And uh, that one didn't, I didn't do any work. I'm, over the years, I've done little little things here and there. It's not in great shape. It's kind of, but it still rents for great cash flow numbers. Um, didn't have dining rooms to turn into bedrooms. That wasn't an option. It just, it, it is what it is. Um, so, but it was a good purchase. Obviously, it worked very well. Um, so I was able to 
Uh, I got found that one off market. Uh, I was actually posted. The lady had put it on Zillow as a make me move. Remember that? I don't know if they even had that. Yeah, I remember that. So it was yep. a make me move that had been on there and it had like expired. And I found the lady's name and called her. And I was like, hey, I saw you post this for a million dollars at make me move four units. And she was like, yeah. She's like, I hate that building. She's like, I got it in the divorce. Like, oh. you're like, like perfect here like, we go I tenants i hate driving to boston i live out i live in this in central mass it's this building just is so it's i hate it i was like sounds like you need me to to buy it um she didn't want to pay any agents so that worked well because i was doing it direct she didn't want to pay attorneys so we shared an attorney which is like the sketchiest thing you're like hey just use mine we'll be good i got you uh, yeah i was like i'll pay the attorney we'll use mine they'll draft it and we'll find it we so we literally shared an attorney and i bought the building um one interesting thing is her husband had pulled permits to do uh an addition in the basement so he pulled you could add additional bedrooms down there so he pulled the permits to make the 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 basement a one from a one bed to a three bed but he had never completed it and the permit was still open uh, so I had, I saw that online and I was able to then take that. And when I bought it, I made the basement from a one bed to a three bed. Um, awesome. so I was able to finish off that permit, um, to, to get those additional bedrooms. So guys, if you're taking notes here, this is the name of the game, right? Like figure out opportunities where you're able to increase your cash flow. And a lot of times it doesn't, it's like the due diligence up front and not necessarily undergoing this massive project. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is that, you know, people ask, like, they're like, is there, are these out there? It's like, there's always, you, you just have to be patient, put your, you know, continue to look at deal after deal after deal and be able to act when you come across one that has additional upside. Like That's it. this, this property was in a three family zone. It actually, if you were to look at it from the outside, it looked like a three family until you went, you deep dove into it. The guy had actually gone through along the process of getting it approved for a fourth unit in the basement he'd actually gotten denied like three times wow. trying to get over like 10 years trying to get a, his basement unit legalized because yep. it was like he was had an illegal unit down there and he finally got it approved like a couple years before i bought it and i had all the approvals from the city and the appeal and everything so it was an elite it was a legal unit um and then he had the and i know and then i pulled the permits and saw that he had an open permit to make more bedrooms so all of that was stuff that I discovered, right? And even when I went to buy the building, the appraiser appraised it as a three-family. And I first went back on the appraiser. Gotta love appraisers. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, it's a three-family. I go, I sent him all the paperwork. I was like, dude, it's a four. That's a, that's a, that's a legal unit. Because he'd marked it as an illegal basement unit. And he ended up changing the appraised value because of the, and I, over the years, I've had to do that every time I've refinanced it. I, I guess I refinanced it one time. But the one time I refinanced it, I had to do the same song and dance. Like it's a legal four. Right. It's assessed as a three. Which See, you know what? We've only come across that. I So I manage a fair amount of units. I've only come across that once where it works in the owner's favor, where it is assessed. This one's assessed as a five, but it's zoned as a six. So that's a huge pickup. Yeah. Particularly at the, the Providence commercial tax rate, which is absolute insanity. So... <laughs> Ricky, so, usually we have the opposite problem. Um, we wanted to buy a five unit in Providence and uh, legally it was only a two family. So we had to pass on it. <laughs> That's they're a like, huge they're like, Well, the woman was in her nineties and it's like, you're never getting that pass. There's not enough parking, no nothing. You know? Yeah. I'm going to see a building this weekend and it's, 
it's, it's, it's five units, but it's only, everything I'm seeing on it is only three. And so I'm going to have to go see it and do a little more diving into it. To see it really five or if it's two and, or three and two other. <laughs> right. There you go. We'll see. Right. So are you still like, I, I know that you're obviously into deep into the develop, the development game. Um, but how actively are you looking at properties? Is it still like every day, every weekend? Like, what does that flow look like? I feel like a lot of investors have just checked out of the stage of the cycle because they feel like they're just priced out of the market. Um, yeah, I mean, we do, um, you know, we're always, always looking, right. We're always buying, like we've got, I don't know, three, three under agreement right now that are going to close in the next couple of weeks or months. Um, but yeah, we're always looking, always buying, um, you know, we make a lot of offers. Like I'm a big believer in offering, right? So yep. like we've got a model that we use to analyze rentals. Uh, my team, you know, I have a brokerage about 20 agents, Evo real estate group. Um, you know, they can bring me opportunities if we, and you know, if they send it to me in the model and the model spits out the return that's required for that area, uh, we'll put an offer in, um, you know, and it's pretty, we're, we're, we keep it pretty simple. A lot of times the offer will be contingent on me accessing the building and deciding to move forward. So just right. I don't have time to go look at these properties, especially when I'm offering hundred K or 50 K under asking. So right. it's like, it's like, Hey, I'll offer cash, no contingencies. This is what I can pay. If you're interested, accept my offer and I'll come look at it, but I'm not going to go look at it until you, we agree on a price. Right. Um, and I, you know, so if we agree on a price that works in my model, based on the pictures, I can put an estimate on construction. If I get into the building and the numbers that I, if the renovation say we were running it at like 75K for a reno and I get in there and I'm like, it's 150K reno. And then we enter that in the model and it lowers my purchase price by 50 grand. It is what it is. We'll have to sell, you have to tell the seller that we can only pay this 50K less. Um, but yeah, we're, con you know, we're continuing to look at. Uh, so you- Mostly uh, off market. Or are you still looking at a few things on MLS? Um, the majority of them are off market. I mean, most of the time it's, it comes into me from somebody directly who comes across an opportunity. We analyze it. We make an offer. Um, there's stuff that pops on MLS uh, and that I review and look at. Um, one thing that I'm getting sick of, and this is kind of pissing me off, is these agents who's, who have decided to take off market to this whole formalized level. And now they make them into these pretty like decks and they send them out to a thousand fucking investors. It's not get, off market. Get out of my face. Well, I'm about to start telling them to stop contacting me because if you want to work with me, I'm not going to be the guy you send it to a thousand people. Cause like then what's happening is they send it out to a thousand people. I get it back from like, then the, everyone other ones. it to me. That's it. Or people come back and text me the address. Hey, you see this one? You see this one? I'm like, that's, if you want to work with us, you need to work with me. Like, you know, so I, that, that's, that, that whole thing with like, it's not off market anymore when you're sending it out to a thousand investors. So I love that energy there. I honestly, I tell this to Frank, like I've blocked a few air quotes, wholesalers. Like I'm just done. Yeah. I know the garbage that you send me. Typically it's daisy chain. You don't have it under contract. You, rehab, you never publish a rehab number and then you push it out to every Tom, Dick, and Harry in the local area or yeah. anybody they can get an email address for. I'm laughing. I'm laughing because Jimmy and I looked at a three family. Was that a four in Fall River the other day? We won't mention any names. But... Oh, those are six. Those okay. Are six. 
Was yeah. it that many? I don't know. Anyway, yeah. we looked at it. Six. <laughs> and uh, he was he got a different price from a different person, more money. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, because yeah. so many people had, like you said, daisy chained and everything else. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's not off market anymore, guys. <laughs> Good yeah, luck. Frank got the call from somebody in New Bedford. I got the call from somebody in Providence. We both meet up in Fall River thinking we're going to see different six families because it's different prices. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we're at the same showing. So. Yeah. Now, see, that's and like that, you know, the, the, the reason for an off market for both sides is supposed to be that it's easy transaction, right? Uh, you know, we're supposed to make this easy cash, no contingencies, no inspections. We're able to you know, close in 30 to 40 days. Um, you know, we're going to make this process easy for you. But if you're, yep. you're sending this out to everybody, then when you get these mom and pop people in there who are going to do offers that are contingent or higher than mine, that's not like that's not how it works here. And, that's then it. Also, and that's what and also like if you're coming to me then it i can do it with no other there's no agent involved so you come directly right. to me i can buy it once you start going out to the world and these agents are bringing their their buyers now i'm going to attach my agent or i'm going to take two and a half percent right because right. like if it's if he if this person's getting brought by an agent and now i'm coming in well you're giving me that two and a half percent Right. right. So I'm going to represent myself. My brokerage will be my representation and the seller can pay my brokerage two and a half percent because it's no longer off market. That's it. And then, I mean, the biggest thing that we talk about, too, with these wholesalers is like if, if you sign with us on the dotted line, like it's cash from a closing. These mom and pop folks that are just getting into the game and I'm not trying to talk them down, but <laughs> their ability to close may not be proven yet. And right. then you have all these contingencies like you talk about. So is it actually an off-market deal at this point or is it a retail deal exactly. i would argue it's more retail the good news is we've locked out and we've had a we've lost on that part but then gotten the phone call the day of closing saying yeah. hey by the way they're not closing it's like okay we'll do it and we'll do it tuesday you that's know? it yeah the hard money lender is like oh i was only lending them 80 percent ltv you guys can have 100 percent of purchase and rehab and i'm like all right <laughs> let's go so um, you own a few buildings. Uh, how did you grow beyond that, Ricky? Um, yeah. So, you know, the, the, I kind of had always thought at this point that my career would go through the continued rental game, buy more rentals, buy more rentals. Um, what you realize pretty quickly is if you're using your own money and you're doing just rentals, it dries up pretty fast once FHA goes away. Right. So after I got my third purchase in, so two FHAs and then a regular standard purchase, 25% down. I was broke. Like I was like, there was, no, poor. More, yeah. there was no more liquidity coming in. Mommy wasn't giving me anymore. Like she'd given me that first loan. The second purchase I bought based on my money I was making. And then also rent roll that had been coming in from the new building. So to yep. get, get up to 30,000. But then you start looking at these 25% down purchases and you're like, <laughs> Holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> Boston, right? This isn't. Yeah. Problem. Like right in a multi back then a multi was like you know in east boston was five or six hundred grand right so still six hundred grand that's a hundred and fifty thousand dollar down payment yep. and so you start to realize like to build the business it's going to be a very slow grind and there's really two options investors right or yep. get into some type of flip slash development deals and Absolutely. so what happened for me is I almost got I almost got pivoted into developments and because of the market rising in price. So it had been now 2010, 2012, third building in 2013. Now it's into 2014. Like the real estate market in Boston had really turned, right? We're talking about now people are buying 
It's out of 2008, way in the past. And I wanted to buy in East Boston. Um, and what was happening is I was being beat. I was being beat out on every offer I was making. Um, I'd, I'd saved up enough cash to get one. But the problem was, is that the offer I could make about like a 500,000 or 450,000 or 400,000, there was now people coming in and paying more than that. And the, and the reason was, is they were speculative buyers. These were people yep. with a lot of cash. They knew the market was going to climb. They didn't really care about immediate cash flow. They cared about that that building for four or 500 K was going to be worth a million. And they were right. Right. They bought right. those in East Boston, 2014, 2015, 2016. By now those are all worth 800, 900, a million dollars. So it was exactly what they knew would happen. And it happened. I didn't have the liquidity to be a, a like a, a buyer in that fashion. I needed cash flow. Right. Um, and I couldn't pay what they were paying and have it cash flow. And so I was like, well, what is my options here? And at that point I was like, well, what about doing condos? And I was, you know, I saw, I'd heard of South. I lived in South Boston at the time. People were doing condo conversions in South Boston. No one was really doing condo conversions in East Boston. And I was like, well, why not? And there was a few condos that had sold over the, the past couple of years, but only like a, one or two. And I was like, well, you know, there's a couple that have sold, like, well, I, it could work. So I bought a three family. I paid more than I would if it was going to be a cash flowing asset. I brought my father in as an investor. Um, and that was my first condo conversion project. So we bought a three family, uh, you know, renovated it and sold it off as condos. And that kind of started the business of now I've got the rental portfolio business and then what became the development business. So I think that's an awesome pivot. Because a lot of people may just get discouraged or stop, but you realize like, hey, I'm good at this. I know how to create that kind of rent ready or market ready product. How do I make that pivot into condos in this circumstance in order to continue to drive that cash flow? So exactly what you're talking about is I, uh, I don't know if I heard this or I coined it myself, so I can't take credit, but I talk about uh, it's like golf, right? So in golf, you drive for show and putt for dough. In real estate, you, you flip or you develop for the for the chunks and then you drop it into the moldies outside of that. And that's really the name of the game. Yeah, 100 percent. I think that, you know, every I, everyone I try to you know mentor or meet with, I always tell them, like, guys, the development business is great. It's flashy. You get nice stuff. You get a nice car. You make good lump sums of money if it goes well. But like <laughs> if it, it goes well. And <laughs> it's not going to continue to always go great. And it's like, what are you doing to set yourself up? So that yep. when things aren't going great, COVID, right? Yep. That you're in a position to continue to have the same lifestyle that you're, you're used to. Absolutely um, right. and so that's why, you know, we've always continued every time we did it, you know, from two, we started developments in 2014. So it's been about, you know, 10 or uh, six, seven years now of developments. We've always continued to buy rentals. Um, you know, every project finishes, we try to buy a rental. Um, yep. And they'll kind of continue to build that number of units that we have. Um, you know, one of the other pivots that I actually did, it's interesting, you guys are down Rhode Island, like, I was doing good on the developments in Boston, like making really good money. But I couldn't buy any more rentals up here. Because the, from my standpoint, the, the, the cash, the people were going nuts. There was like a time a couple of years ago, like, everything was selling for so high. I was just like, I'm not going to pay that like the cap, right. the, the returns or the cap rates are way too low. These people are not it's not making sense. And so I actually ended up going down to Providence. And I ended up buying six buildings in Federal Hill. Um, That's awesome. So I was like, I heard about Providence. I heard about rentals down there. I heard about the market down there. Someone brought me a portfolio of 10 buildings, started analyzing them. I was like, huh, 
this looks interesting. Like this could work. And like, uh, I ended up finding kind of a niche of these guys selling portfolios of like 10 buildings, six buildings. And what I would do is cherry pick the ones I wanted. And so that allowed me to get the ones that I thought were the best return working with agents down there. Um, and so I was able to cherry pick six buildings over about a year to two year period and they were between three and six unit buildings on federal Hill. Um, awesome which was allowed me to then continue to get cash flow coming in while still doing developments um, when I wasn't able to make buildings in Boston work for the model that I would require. I love that. I love that. And honestly, we've seen, it's interesting because, and Frank, keep me honest here, but I have seen some of those portfolios come through and it, it seems like they're always in Federal Hill for some reason. Like there are other areas of Providence that uh, some are sought after, some aren't, but it's interesting that most of the portfolios that come through in that like West End or Federal Hill area. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's just old school guys who own a lot of like old assets that like- For sure. Just oh get, yeah. You know, they, get, they get sold. These are the old Italians that bought them for like 30 grand a piece. Uh, yeah. No, they were gifted by Buddy Cienci to these guys. You know better. <laughs> so come that, on. Hey, come I on. didn't want to say that on record, so- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Anyways, so I mean, you started killing it. You you develop in Boston. You rotate down to Providence. Now you're starting to tackle some larger projects. Like, what are you really excited about that you're working on right now? Yeah. So we've you know over the years we've kind of gone from you know it, it made the steps right. So and I think that this is important for everyone to understand. Like I always like you should always walk before you run, right? And like yep. you know I think people are like, oh my gosh, it's crazy what you guys are doing now. I'm like, yeah, I started in 2010. It's like, it's been, I started buying real estate in 2010. It's been, a, it's been 11 years of building to this point. It's not like I just jumped into this. It's That's like, it. there's been step by step by step of a ton of knowledge and mistakes and stuff that got me here. So, you know, 2014, we were doing condo conversions, like where we were buying three families, making them into condos. We did one that year, two the next year, three the following year. And then I got into the permitting stage where I learned about zoning and, and the ability to take an asset or a parcel that is underutilized and go through the neighborhood process, the zoning process until we get it approved for something bigger, right? And so buying empty lots and getting them approved for a four unit or buying a single family and getting it approved for a six family. And then going through that, then you, you know, obviously going, learning the part of ground up construction, right? So then we made the move in about, you know, 2016, 2017, 2018 into ground up construction. So, which is a whole different ball game. There's so many more factors of taking a clean site coming out of the ground and building a building. Um, and, you know, then about two years ago, I, I ended up partnering up with uh, an individual named John Taco. We started our, a new, uh, our new development company, which is for our goal, the two of us was like large scale development projects, like not what I'm doing on my projects, not the, you know, we've got a lot of projects that are 50 units and under, uh, you know, 30, a 45, a 50, and then a smaller stuff. That's Volney Capital stuff. And then I'm working with John. Our goal is large development projects. So we, we, two years ago, we partnered up. We started a company, which we're calling V10 Development. And we uh, permitted our 85 units in Everett. So I found uh, these two parcels uh, on Broadway next to City Hall, directly in the heart of Everett. Um, they'd actually were under agreement for five years by CVS. CVS was trying to permit a CVS there. So the sellers had given them a pretty much open-ended contingency to get a CVS approved for big money to sell their land. Um, then CVS got denied by the mayor and by the city. They didn't want a big, just an open parking lot CVS next to city hall. Uh, 
as soon as it fell out of escrow, I got a call from an agent. I looked at it. I called my partner and I was like, hey, I think this is our site. We've been looking for sites for about six months. Everything we came across wouldn't work. I think this one will. Um, so we put that one under agreement with contingencies and uh, went through about a year and a, a, over a year in process of getting that entitled to build 85 units. Um, and so now we just uh, did our groundbreaking this week. Um, and so we're, we're going to be doing demolition on that in the next week or two. Uh, we'll be taking down the existing structures and getting ready to start construction. Good stuff. Quick, quick question. I know it's a little off topic, but just related to that, when you build 85 units in Massachusetts, do you have to have a certain amount of like low income permitted or anything? Yeah. So it depends on the, everything depends on where you're at. So for in ever, it's 15% of the building has to be affordable unless the site is contaminated, which is an interesting policy in Everett, where it's, if you have a contaminated site, cause there's a lot of areas of Everett that have very, a lot of contamination from industrial use, those you can drop your uh, down to 5%. Our site was clean though. So we have 15% affordable. Um, and then in the bo in Boston, the minimum affordable on a, pro on a project that's 10 units or more is 13%. Got it. Gotcha. Um, All right, so let's see. Here's some questions that we ask every one of our uh, people that we have on the show. Uh, if someone wants to become a better investor, what would you recommend they do? So I think the, the first thing you need to learn when you're coming as is, is deal analysis, right? So if you are going to buy people, this is, and I always say, so a deal is made on your computer, right? You don't need, you need, if you can't, you can analyze 90% of an investment from behind your computer, right? So learning how to analyze deals, looking at the comps, figuring out the rents, looking at expenses, building out an analysis, my, like macro uh, sheet to look at deals. That's gonna be your number one importance, right? The second thing is that there's things that can be discovered when you're at the building, right? Those are tweaks that can be made. Like, that's why I said, when I offer on buildings, a lot of times I've never seen them, right? Cause I don't really care until like, there's a last piece that has to be tweaked when I go see it, but I can look at Google maps. I can look at, uh, pictures of the property, the inside, the outside, and like make and the location and and make decisions from my computer. So step one to becoming a great investor is know the numbers and know how to analyze a deal. There you go. Next question. I'm not sure if you're a book reader, but uh, what is one book do you consider a must read? Um. So, I mean, the tip obviously the typical one. Everyone, you know, uh, uh, rich dad, poor dad. You know, is obviously the first book that you know I, I you know give to my cousins and stuff. I'm like, read this book. Um, so that's that's a good a typical one. Um, another book that I uh, never split the difference. Um, is one I read last year. Um, it's a great book and it really fires you up for negotiations. Hell so yeah. if you if you want to read a book and then like hop into a negotiation with someone over a, a, a multifamily. Uh, they'll give you, they'll, there'll be some tricks in there that you're going to, you'll I, like, I feel like you should read that book every year if you're in real estate. Cause like, there's definitely things in the book that you can directly take into the conversation with an agent or with a seller. Um, so it's a good book. Never split the difference. Yeah. I think Jimmy has that in his library. I should borrow it. One I point. do. I do. That's a good one. <laughs> All right. Last question. What do you want to be when you grow up? Which means, uh, where do you see yourself five or 10 years from now? 
Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think right now we're excited about our 85 units and we're, you know, want to see this one, you know, everyone always warned me about your first big project, right? Like everyone is like, a lot of people don't ever make the jump, right? This is like 99.999% of developers don't jump into big development. It's just high risk, uh, high reward, but like, it's just, you don't do it. It's like, it's just that line. People don't go there. Um, I, my goal is to get this one built, stabilized and running successfully as my first large asset. Um, and then along with that, we've got another two large projects that we're working on, um, that are currently, uh, either in zoning or about to go into zoning. So we've got 365 unit, uh, building that we're, uh, working on getting submitted. And then we have a 322 unit that we're working on, uh, getting submitted for approvals. So stage two of the large development and kind of where I want to be when I grow up is not only deliver this 85 units successfully, but then have that roll directly into the groundbreaking on hopefully two 300 plus unit buildings uh, that will drive into the next five years. So it'll be 24 months of building and stabilizing this asset. Then these ones will then be approved and we'll be breaking ground around the same time on two new very large assets. Good stuff. Man. Awesome. So this was really cool because uh, I started like you house hacking and uh, I'm behind the game. I got to get into that development game, but uh, we've shifted the flips here. So the, I hopefully I think folks will gain a lot of value out of this. So we appreciate having you on. Um, if folks want to reach out to you, what's the best way to reach out or just follow your story? Yeah. So you can always check us out. It's on Instagram, Volney Capital. We try to be an open book. I think that's one thing I'm, I'm fully transparent on there. Uh, we share the ups, we share the downs, we share the mistakes, the denials in permitting. Like I think it's, we try to make it so it's, it's transparent to everybody. Um, if you want to shoot me an email, it's Ricky at Volney Capital. Excellent. So guys, we'll drop down the show notes. Uh, Ricky, we appreciate having you here. If you guys want to check us out in between times, in between podcasts, follow us at the Cashflow Kings on Instagram. And then also we have a website, thecashflowkings.com. Cheers to your success. The Cashflow Kings program is for basic entertainment purposes only. We do not give official legal, tax, or investment advice.